Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's good to be back with you again. Today, we make our way to our third study of Christ through the ages. This time our text is found in Isaiah 50, the third servant song. And our focus for this session is going to be on the unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 50. To understand the context of Isaiah 50 is to recognize that this text was written to the exiles. The southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin had been taken captive. They were now in Babylon, and the first three verses of the chapter were written to communicate to the exiles who had felt that Yahweh had left them that Yahweh, their God, had finally abandoned them and given them over to slavery. And so what you see in the first three verses is that Isaiah is telling the people God had not broken his covenant with his people. Their situation was temporary, and the prophet used language of everyday experiences to communicate this truth. Their sin had gotten them there. Their failure to listen to the warnings of the prophets brought them down this road. But God was most certainly not done with Israel. And out of this comes the third servant song, which is once again another amazing text from the Word of God. Take a look at our text, Isaiah 50, and we'll pick it up with verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak. A word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Thomas Andrew Dorsey is a name from days gone by, but he has quite the story to tell. Thomas was a black jazz musician from Atlanta. In the 1920s, he gained some notoriety because his jazz tunes had suggestive lyrics. But after becoming a Christian in the mid-1920s, his focus changed. Eventually, he would go on to write more than a thousand gospel hymns, and one of his most famous songs is Peace in the Valley. But there's a true story behind his most famous song that deserves to be told. In 1932, times were hard for Dorsey, just trying to survive the Great Depression, as a working musician meant tough sledding. To make matters worse, at the time, his music was not accepted by many Christians. It was labeled too worldly, the devil's music. Many years later, Thomas would laugh and testify, I got kicked out of some of the best churches in the land. But the real kick in the teeth came one night in St. Louis. Thomas was living in Chicago with his wife, Nettie. It was a hot August afternoon, and he had to go to St. Louis because he was the featured soloist at a large revival meeting. Thomas didn't want to go. Nettie was in her last month of pregnancy with their first child. But he had to, and so he made his way down to St. Louis in a Model A. Well, the next night, in the summer St. Louis heat, the crowd called on Thomas to keep singing. 
And when he finally sat down, a messenger boy ran up with a Western Union telegram. Thomas ripped open the envelope, posted on the yellow sheet were the words, Your wife just died. People were singing and clapping all around him, but he could barely keep from crying out. He rushed to a phone to call home, and all he could hear on the other end was, Nettie is dead. Nettie is dead. When he got back to Chicago, he learned that Nettie had given birth to a boy. Listen to his own words from that time. I swung between grief and joy, yet that night, the baby died. I buried Nettie and her little boy together in the same casket. Then I fell apart. For days, I closeted myself. I felt that God had done me an injustice. I didn't want to serve him anymore or write gospel songs. I just wanted to go back to that jazz world I once knew so well. The following Saturday, a friend took Thomas to a music school. Again, listen to his words. It was quiet. The late evening sun crept through the curtain windows. I sat down at the piano and my hands began to browse over the keys. Something happened to me. Then I felt at peace. I felt as though I could reach out and touch God. I found myself playing a melody, one I'd never heard or played before. And the words into my head, they just seemed to fall into place. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I am tired. I am weak. I am worn through the storm. Through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. Thomas later wrote, I learned that when we are in our deepest grief, when we feel farthest from God, this is when he is closest and when we are most open to his restoring power. And so I go on living for God willingly and joyfully until that day comes when he will take me and gently lead me home. Well, the Lord did take Thomas home in January of 1993. But here is the lesson that we're confronted with. If you live long enough, you will experience heartache, disappointment, and sometimes the feeling of sheer helplessness. But what we learn from this third servant song is that the Lord is our most precious resource in those hours of trauma. This same teaching is found in Psalm 9-9. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. This trust that we should have is the same type of trust that the servant had with the Father, even in the most difficult times. Notice down in verse 7, the Lord God will help me. And again, verse 9, surely the Lord God will help me. The servant trusted the Father, and this trust was because of who he is as God the Son. And this trust is because of his unique relationship with the Father. And so we're going to look at this special relationship of God the Father and God the Son. Let's start with verse 4. Once again, it is the servant of Israel speaking. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Now, repeatedly, we see this expression in this text, the Lord God. The Lord simply meaning master. God here is Yahweh. So we have God the Son addressing the Father as Lord and as Yahweh. Turn, if you would, to Zechariah 2. Understand with me that Jeremiah had prophesied in Jeremiah 25:11 that the southern tribes would be captured and taken to Babylon for a period of 70 years. After Babylon fell to Persia, Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. 
Zechariah was one of those that returned, and his prophetic ministry reveals God's plans for the future nation of Israel. In Zechariah 2, the chapter begins with a vision of the future, when the servant shall reign from Jerusalem as king. But then in verses 6 and 7, the focus is on urging the Hebrew people of that day to return to their land, to Jerusalem. And now, take a look at verses 8 and 9, keeping in mind this is the servant of Israel. This is the Messiah speaking. For thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. The basic message is that God the Father would send the Messiah. The Messiah will come to judge the nations of the world at the second coming. Because Israel is the apple of God's eye. And the Gentile nations of the world that plunder Israel will face the judgment of God. But don't miss this. In verse 8, Zechariah referred to the servant as the Lord of hosts. The wording is literally, thus says Yahweh. God the Son is referred to as Yahweh. And then down in verse 9, it is the Son referring to the Father. And the text states, you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. You will know that Yahweh has sent me. Meaning here, Zechariah introduces us to the Son as Yahweh, and the Son refers to the Father as Yahweh, just as the Son does back in verse 4 in Isaiah 50. Make your way to the New Testament, heading to Colossians 1. The message of the entire Bible can be summed up in one word, Christ. Predicted in the Old Testament, the Gospels present Him as God in the flesh, and the New Testament reveals more of who He is. Colossians 1, verse 15, referring to Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. A correct interpretation of this verse determines who we understand Christ to be. We need to focus on the word image. The word for image means likeness. In Paul's time, the word for image was used to convey the likeness that is placed on coins and statues. The meaning is that Christ is the perfect representation of God, It conveys to the reader two things. First, it suggests the idea of representation. Paul is stating here that Jesus represents God. Notice the wording. He is the image. Not that he became the image. The idea behind it is that Christ, by his nature, part of who he is, is God. Always has been. Always will be. Paul is talking about Christ's eternal representation of God because Christ is God. The second idea put forth with the word image is that Christ is the manifestation of the invisible God. God is not limited to being confined in a body, but God chose to manifest himself in Christ. Jesus is the full, final, and complete revelation of God. Firstborn of all creation in verse 15, the idea is simply firstborn in position, firstborn in rank. This was a position not necessarily a chronological ranking of who was born first. Jacob and Esau are the perfect example. Esau was born first, but Jacob became the firstborn and received the inheritance. And so the meaning here that Christ is the firstborn is position, telling us that not only is Jesus the full representation of God, not only is Jesus God manifest in human form, but Christ being the firstborn in position, it means he is sovereign, over all creation. In verse 16, Paul teaches that Christ is the creator. Everything was created through him 
and for him. But notice verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Christ is before all things as we know it, before our world existed, before time as we know it existed. In eternity past, Christ existed. The prophet Micah spoke of this. Micah 5.2, speaking of Christ, that his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And when Christ was praying to God the Father in John 17, Jesus said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is the picture given to us of God the Son and God the Father in glory before the foundations of the world. Christ is outside of creation because he is the one who created. And in him all things consist, or in him all things hold together meaning all of creation continues to exist because of Jesus Christ. And then Paul teaches in verse 18 that Christ is the firstborn from the dead, first in authority, first to rise again with a glorified body. Christ is the one who will resurrect our bodies. So even in the resurrection, Christ is first. He's the head of the church. And then look at verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. The full attributes and power of God dwells in Christ. He is the complete embodiment of God. The ideas of God permanently dwelling in Christ. Skip ahead to chapter 2. The Apostle Paul liked to teach in circles, coming back to the principles he had established before. Notice verse 9 of Colossians 2. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Let's understand the teaching here. Christ is not part God and part man. At the Incarnation, two natures, full deity and full humanity, were united forever in the person of Jesus. This is referred to as the hypostatic union, that Jesus now, even in his glorified body, has two natures. It means that when Christ walked on the earth in his human body, he had the fullness of God dwelling in him. And it means right now, verse 9 is in the present tense, right now Jesus, in his glorified body, has the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him. And the beautiful words of encouragement from this text are found in the opening words of verse 10, and you are complete in him. Because we are united to Christ, we have no need that he does not supply. Let's take a minute to wrestle with this. Christ is God, always has been, but then he became a man. A body meant that at times he got tired, he was hungry, but how can this be if he is God? A minute ago, I mentioned that this is referred to as the hypostatic union, which means Jesus Christ was one person. It was not and is not two beings sharing a body. One person, fully God, fully man. When Christ walked this earth, his humanity did not dilute his deity. In other words, he was still fully God. And his humanity was not diluted by his deity. Let me give you a couple of principles that helps us to put together this teaching. First, we must remember that the incarnation or Christ becoming a man, it was more of a gaining of human attributes than it was a giving up of divine attributes. Jesus was already God. God the Son took on human form, human attributes, not an additional human personality, just human attributes. And secondly, when we think of the two natures of Christ, we need to understand that when Jesus was here on earth, the two natures did not function independently. They work together. Here's what I mean. Christ did not stop being God, but the divine nature of Christ, 
was limited by the circumstance of being united with his human nature. He did this by choice. This is not a full limitation of his divine nature. Allow me to illustrate. If you took the fastest person you know, and then you took the slowest person you know, and let's say we have a church picnic, and at that picnic we decide to have a three-legged race, where you tie the legs of the two people together and put them into a potato sack. Now each team would have their legs tied together in the middle, and then they would race. The fastest person all on their own would have no problem winning the race, but tied to the slowest person, the fast person could no longer run as fast as they normally could. It would not change the nature of either person. The fast person would still be fast, and the slow person would still be slow. But as long as they were together, the faster person would be limited by the slower person. And so here comes the teaching. Jesus chose to limit himself to human nature. One person, two natures. It did not change who he was. It didn't take away anything from him. And the nature he took on, it was like that of Adam before he fell into sin. He was sinless. One more quick passage before we tackle Isaiah 50. Make your way over to Philippians 2. And this is just a short stop in a passage that deserves much more attention. Philippians 2, pick it up with verse 6, referring to Christ. Who, being in the form of God, now let's stop. The word for form in most translations, it means the inner essence, meaning here the inner essence of Jesus. Before the incarnation, this is who he was. He was God. Pick it up again. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God in his pre-incarnate state because that is exactly who he was. But he made himself of no reputation or literally he emptied himself, meaning he became a man. And something that is very germane to our discussion in Isaiah is that Christ took on the role of being a servant. The creator took on the humble role of coming as the servant. He came as a man, but he was unlike any man that has ever lived because he retained his deity. He left the glories of heaven. The eternal son of God humbled himself on our behalf and went to the cross. But the humbled Messiah is now exalted. Make your way back to Isaiah. The servant declared that the father had given him the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. It was appointed that the servant would speak words of comfort to the weary. This was the message of the Father. Think back to the first servant song. Isaiah 42 testified that at the first advent of Christ, a bruised reed he would not break, the smoking flax he would not quench. Christ came to restore and to encourage people of faith. In Luke 9:56, Jesus himself testified for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. His words bring comfort to the souls of men, which is why he also taught, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice the last part of our verse. He awakens me, Morning by morning, he awakens my ear to hear as the learned. 
The idea here is that the servant was submissive to the father, and he interacted with the father. This should bring to mind the words of Mark 135, referring to Christ. The text teaches, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Christ was in constant fellowship with the Father. And as you look at verse 5 in our text, you have to remember the contrast. Israel did not listen. Israel did not obey. The Hebrew people were in captivity because they insisted on worshiping idols instead of serving the living God. And therefore the servant testifies, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Jesus obeyed the plan of the Father, even when he knew that it would bring suffering and shame. No rebellion, no rejection of the Father's plan was to be found in the servant. But instead, what we read in the gospel records is that the Son was steadfast and determined to carry out the will of the Father and to convey his message to the world. But take a look at verse 6, powerful text. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. The most difficult time was surely the suffering he faced at his death. This is what our text boldly predicted centuries before. The Word of God describes those that get struck on the back as fools. Proverbs 19 teaches that beatings are for the backs of fools. Our Lord suffered this humiliation. He gave his back to those who struck him, and again he offered up his cheeks for his beard to be plucked out. Now, not only was this incredibly painful, it was considered to be a sign of disrespect. It was a sign of contempt. The Savior did not hide his face from the shame and the spitting. Listen to the perfect fulfillment of this in the New Testament. Matthew 26, 67. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands. Matthew 27, 30. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Luke 22, 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. Mark 14, 65. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Listen to the mocking he endured in Mark 15. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. The message of Isaiah is that the Savior of Israel would suffer much more than the people were suffering as a nation in Babylon. He would not defend himself, but instead he offered himself up for you and for me. His humiliation that he faced is his proof of his love for us. And Jesus testified in John 10, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. And listen to this part. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. It would be impossible for any mere man to go through the sufferings that Christ did without giving in to the temptation to fight back. That is precisely what he did. Remember what we read in 1 Peter. When he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. 
And that is exactly what we see prophesied in verse 7. He committed himself to the Father. And notice the wording, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. I believe the wording indicates that these were the thoughts of the servant when he went through the suffering. And the only help for the servant was the Lord. His thoughts were of the Father while he suffered. And the idea of not being disgraced means that the servant would be honored. Notice the phrase in the middle of the verse. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. The basic idea is that the servant of God was determined even though he faced opposition, meaning he had set his face, his direction like a hard rock so that he could not be turned to the side. He had an unbreakable commitment, a determined and resolute commitment to continue to carry out the will of God and to trust him. And again, this was fulfilled perfectly in the life and ministry of Christ. The servant was fiercely determined to obey the will of the Father. He was on a mission and nothing could keep him from going to the cross. Luke 9.51 records, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The servant took confidence from knowing that he would not be ashamed. God would not abandon him. It was his inner conviction that the despised and suffering Messiah would be vindicated. Certainly this was true at his resurrection. He is seated at the right hand of the Father now, and his vindication will continue at his second coming. The faith lesson that comes out of this for us is that the Savior knew even though things looked bad, he was doing God's will, and this would lead to his vindication. He would not let the suffering and shame he faced to weaken his trust in the Father, and that really is the issue for us, isn't it? At times, all we can do is follow the pattern of the Savior, living for Christ, following his will, and knowing that at the end, we will be vindicated with Christ. We should have this type of perspective, knowing that in the end, God never fails. He will not abandon us. For the Savior, his faith and reliance upon the Father was the rock and source of his strength. This theme continues. Take a look at verses 8 and 9. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The wording here reminds us of a courtroom scene. Jesus had a sham of a trial before he went to the cross. But here is his defense. The servant is declaring his righteousness. No one could condemn him. No one could show him to be guilty of sin. Jesus even challenged the Jews in John 8, asking them, Which of you convicts me of sin? And the answer is no one. Even Pilate told the Jews in John 18, I find no fault in him at all. He didn't deserve to die, but the Father would defend him. The Father would vindicate him. The Father was at hand to declare him just. God the Father saw him as he truly is, completely righteous. And therefore, no one could contend with him. No one could show that the servant was not just. Those that falsely accused the Christ would grow old like a garment. The moth would eat them up. God didn't wipe them out right away. He let them live to meet their eventual fate. Because the day is coming when every person will stand before the Lord Jesus. He will be their judge. And like moth-eaten garments, those that oppose Christ will perish. They will be put to shame. 
I'd like to close our time by reading some excerpts from the biography of a very remarkable woman. The following is part of a letter that she wrote to her grandfather when she was eight years old. Keep in mind, when this little girl was born, someone put the wrong drops in her eyes by mistake, and she was blind. As she writes the following, she is eight and still blind. Her mother had taken her to New York to a couple of eye specialists. They'd come back home, and it is then that she writes this letter. Dear Gramps, have you got your hat on? Take it off. This news is going to knock your hat off. Gramp, do you know where I went? I went to New York. Do you know Mama wouldn't let me go on the Women's Guild picnic because it was down on the Hudson River on a boat? She was afraid because I was blind and I might get hurt. Do you know how I went to New York? (laughs) Down the Hudson River on a boat. I did, and I didn't get hurt. But, oh, Gramp, New York was wonderful. I heard the cloppity-clop of the horses' hooves on the cobblestone streets, and I heard the trash cans rattling down the streets. Mama said I saw more of New York with my ears and fingers than she did with her eyes. And Dr. Mott and Dr. Delafield, they were the doctors. They were gentlemen. Not gentlemen, Gramp, but gentlemen. Dr. Mott took me up on his lap and let me get acquainted with his face, with my fingers. He had a gentle face, Gramp. It was soft like old wrinkled leather. It was like your face. It was beautiful. And then they put my head in a machine and they screwed it down tight. And they said, could I see? And said lots of long words and then they told Mama that I would never see again. Mama cried and I heard her blow her nose. And they patted my head and said, poor little girl. You know, like people do. And they shook hands and I thanked them and we got back on the boat and went home. Mama says I gotta stop now. I'm dictating this letter to her. Read my happy poem. It's called Happy Poem to My Gramps, and this is the poem that she wrote. Oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I'm resolved that in this world, contented I will be. So many blessings I enjoy that other people don't, so sigh and cry because I'm blind. I just can't, and I won't. Gramps, do you know why it's a happy poem? It's a happy poem because after I got on the boat and it was dark and Mama fell asleep and there was nobody there but God, I cried. I cried because I'm blind and because there was no hope for me. And I said, God, I mind being blind, but not so very much because I know you'll take care of me. But there's something I do mind very much, God. I haven't got a job to do. That I mind. Everybody I know is going to school and kids are studying and they're going to be doctors and nurses and teachers and get married and have children, and teach, and have jobs. God, don't go past me. I've got poems in me. I've got music in me. Please don't go by me, God. If you would give me a job to do, I don't care what it is. I promise you this night that I will do it with all my heart. Gramps, do you know what? God answered me. He did. I can tell you things like this, and you'll understand. Other people pat me on the head and say, God bless you, but you know what I mean. God answered me. He said, Fanny Jane Crosby, don't be discouraged. I've got a job for you to do. Now, he hasn't told me what it is yet, but as soon as he does, I'm going to do it with all my heart. I've given him myself, and he's going to give me a job to do. Mama says I've got to stop. It's past supper time. Goodbye, your loving granddaughter, Fanny J. Crosby. P.S. Do you know what? I know the whole first four books of the New Testament by heart. And I know the whole first four books of the Old Testament by heart. And Mama says I don't make one mistake. Gramps, 
Do you think that God could use a little girl like me? With all my love, Fanny. The first school for the blind was set up in all places New York City. Fanny Crosby was sent there. She had a remarkable IQ. She'd been taught by a Christ-honoring grandmother, a Christ-honoring mother, and a Christ-honoring Sunday school teacher. She got out of college in just three years, and then she got a job teaching there, the youngest teacher ever to teach at that school. She fell in love with a blind music student, and they had 40 years of wonderful marriage together. She wrote thousands of hymns, and as long as you and I live, we'll be singing hymns written by Fanny Crosby. She was invited to speak at both houses of Congress. She got a standing ovation and a standing invitation to come back at any time that she wanted. All the big shots from Congress would stop at the little school in Brooklyn on their way to other places and would stop and visit with her. She had a wonderful life where she accomplished many great things, all because she learned to ask God not for a career, not for a husband, not for a job or fame, not for clothes, money, or anything else. She asked the Lord for a job to do, and she didn't care what it was. She gave God a blank check for her life. She said, God, give me a job to do. I swear this night I will do it with all my heart. This is the prayer that will put you back on the road to rediscovering your first love, Jesus Christ. The desire of the servant was to do the will of the Father. His trust in the Father and his trust in the plan of the Father for his life, it never faltered. This is the example of the Savior before us. And when we start looking for God to do what he wants in our lives, our entire perspective changes. The prophet Isaiah went on to proclaim in verse 10, Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Isaiah invited the faithful remnant of Israel to trust God, to walk with him, despite living in a dark and desperate world. The message is to trust in the name of the Lord Jesus and to rely upon his God, rely upon God the Father in his plan for your life knowing that the Lord will strengthen you for whatever task he has called you to. Let your life be a living testimony of Christ, giving him a blank check for your life. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.